welcome, welcome, welcome everyone to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, and on this episode, Brian and I chat with Hannah Navarre and Dennis Weibolt over Zoom about a piece they co-authored titled, In Response to American Theocracy and the War on Christmas. Their piece is in response to an article by friend of the show, Alex Jarecki, and their goal was to add a decidedly Christian perspective to Alex Jarecki's takes on the role of Christianity and religion in American public life. In our conversation, we talk about why Hannah and Dennis decided to add their thoughts on this topic, and about what they believe often gets left out of the conversation when people talk about Christianity in America. We also get to hear from our guests about what they believe separation of church and state really means, and about the experiences of Christians in American culture and in the judicial system. Additionally, Hannah and Dennis also join us for a unique installment of Class Struggle hosted by Ariana Bennett. I say unique because we get to hear from both of our guests about classes they liked, and we get a brief look into the world of Boston College, which is where Dennis goes to school. As always, I recommend going online to the NUPoliticalReview.com website in the national section to read both Hannah and Dennis's piece and Alex Jarecki's piece for yourself. And without further ado, let's get into the show. Welcome everyone to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I'm your host, Max Huber, he, him pronouns, and this week I'm joined by Hannah Navarre and Dennis Weibolt to talk about their article called In Response to American Theocracy and the War on Christmas. And I'm also joined by one of my producers, Brian Grady. Brian, if you want to introduce yourself. Hi, everyone. Thanks again for having me, Max. Uh, I'm Brian Grady. I'm one of the producers here at Newper. I'm a poli-sci major, and my Newper position is just producer here. I don't write. All right. And now, Hannah and Dennis, if you guys could introduce yourselves to the audience. Yes, of course. Hi, everyone. I'm Hannah. I use she, her, hers as my pronouns. I'm a current second-year political science and international affairs major, as well as a staff writer here at Newper. I also have my friend Dennis here along with me. He's from Boston College, and we got to know each other through student government. Hi, everyone. Hi, Max, Brian, and Hannah. Thanks for having me on today. Uh, my name is Dennis Weibold. He's he, him pronouns. I'm a history and theology junior at Boston College, and I'm uh, very excited to uh, speak with you all today. We're super excited to have both of you on the show today to talk about Christianity and religion in general in American public life, which is basically what your piece was about. So for those who are unfamiliar or haven't read the piece yet, it is a response piece to something written by another Newper contributor called American Theocracy and the War on Christmas. So considering that this is a response to that, what motivated you two to come together and respond to this article? So I had come across this article online uh, through Hannah. And as I was reading it, I was interested in the title. Obviously, it's a provocative title, as many titles are nowadays. And as I was reading it through, I was thinking about how that had comported uh, with the study that I do at BC, which is really focused on religion and American public life between my two majors. And overall, I, I came away from the piece thinking that it misrepresented uh, who Christians are by using the supposed beliefs uh, of a small subset of American Christianity to try and extrapolate about all American Christians. So I think that was the first thing that kind of struck me 
Secondly, I, I think the piece mischaracterized what being American and Christian means by attempting to draw an unduly sharp line of separation between someone's personal religious convictions and their activity in the public square. And then I think thirdly, as a student of history, I'm applying to master's programs in history right now, I thought the piece was ahistorical in a way that it overlooked especially American Catholic history and the way in which anti-Catholicism has been so intrinsically tied to political, economic, and social developments in the 19th and 20th centuries. And if I can ask both of you, do do you guys identify as Christians or as religious in any way? So I identify as non-denominational, and I was raised in a Christian household. Both of my parents are pastors, and we have a church in an inner city location. And I really was able to grow in my faith during my time in high school. I attended a predominantly atheist and agnostic school very STEM-based, and so it really allowed me to grow into my faith rather than having it something passed down onto me. And so now continuing my journey of faith in college, I found it to be a really important responsibility as a believer to advocate for what it means to truly be a Christian, to uphold our values, and to allow those voices that often go unnoticed in the public square to really be addressed and delved into in public spheres like this one. So for my part, I was born into a Catholic family, uh, and for my grandparents, especially uh, on my maternal side, faith was always a really important part of their lives. I think not least because of their experiences as, as Italian immigrants. I went to parochial school and then public high school, and now I'm at Boston College, uh, which for those who don't know is a Jesuit Catholic institution. In many ways, I think BC has provided me with very helpful lessons on how to live an authentically faithful life, even in a hyper-plural society. So, you know, when I came across the piece that we responded to, I couldn't help to think about how my experience compared to the representation in the article. So for both of you, this, isn't, this wasn't just a purely academic topic that you were interested in sharing your thoughts on, but it's also a, a deeply personal topic that you really wanted to bring both your, your experience and your studies um, to give a more nuanced and different picture than the one you felt was presented in the, the piece you responded to. Yes, I think it's really important to always hear the other side of the story. And although an op-ed article does perpetuate one idea, we did have the freedom to respond and start a dialogue. J jumping off from that piece, one of the, the big points I know that you mentioned throughout the article is about the diversity among Christians in America. And so I was wondering if you could tell our audience a little bit about what diversity looks like within Christian America and what Christian America really looks like compared to perhaps some of the stereotypes or the kind of the general public perception of what an American Christian looks like. There are very differences amongst Christians, the first being different denominations. There are over 40,000 different denominations. I couldn't name probably more than 10. However, I think that's a really big area to look into amongst Christian communities. It isn't a single united front. A lot of us do different practices. Dennis and myself also have various differences. He started coming to my church group and had so many questions about what we were doing, even though we found we have a lot of the same core values. So often Christian reactions are very different on the theological side of things, as well as social. Some churches will have the LGBTQ plus flag outside of their churches. Other would find that very terrible and they, they couldn't support it. So that's another example of how open they are, I guess, as progressive Christians versus more conservative, 
as well as that also falls along political lines and even economic differences. For example, bringing in the idea of faith and ethnicity, my family's church is in an inner city location where it's predominantly African American and Hispanics. And so we get a very different experience culturally within our church services compared to a predominantly white service that I might attend in Boston. So I believe there's a lot of aspects that people tend to undermine, especially in the piece we responded to that stated that a lot of Christians right now are afraid of a growing ethnic diversity. However, that's really what we're built on, and those differences really bring strength within our community in various ways. And I might add on that, as, as Hannah said, there's you know there's a lot of denominations in the U.S. and around the world, uh, but even in the Catholic perspective, one of the one of the fastest growing Catholic subpopulations in the U.S. is Hispanic Christians. So, you know, there's a lot of talk politically about immigration, especially from the Southern Hemisphere. So from a Catholic perspective, I don't know many Catholics who really see that as an issue, especially, you know, looking at the church and the church's leadership. If anything, that contributes to our understanding and a more holistic view of, um, you know, who our neighbors are. And correct me if I'm wrong, Dennis, since I know that you've studied kind of the history of the faith, but I've kind of been learning a lot about the origins of Christianity in my studies recently. And something that I have noticed throughout the early years of the church is that there was, from the start, there was kind of an evangelical bent to it where early Christians wanted to spread the faith and convert other people in the the Roman Empire and some of those communities from antiquity. So diversity has kind of a historic place in in the church. Is that fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. I think if you look at if you look at the origin of Christianity after Christ, you know, you see Paul's letters and you see it was intrinsically, you know, the Christian faith is intrinsically an evangelical faith. The purpose is to branch out and bring more spread the word is kind of, you know, the line that I think Hannah and I would be familiar with um, every weekend. But yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's both a, a privilege to be able to share it as well as a responsibility because, you know, from a Christian perspective, that word and what the significance of the faith means, that's something that should be shared. So the role that, you know, we can play, and I think I can speak for Hannah and myself here, is, you know, we might be, you know, just college students, but I think we try to do our part, at least uh, to spread the word as we see it. And that's just to kind of qualify it a little bit. That's to say spreading it, but you're you're not forcing people, right? There is a dark side to the history of kind of forcing the faith on communities as a... Especially these communities of color that were touting as elements of diversity. Historically, that's the origins of that religiosity. I agree. I think religion plays an interesting role within society as a whole, because if you look back to before Christianity even coming to America, we have Protestants killing Catholics and vice versa, and the idea of what is this single truth that we hold. And moving forward, there's always going to be a different reason for people to fight and people to have their differences. For example, cultural wars have increased insanely within the past few decades. Pushing religion aside still allows for a rationalist type theory to raise up in politics, so there's always a reason to be at battle with one another. But I think in the past, religion has been abused as a reason for that. And so when it comes to being a true Christian and sharing our faith, even we would like to live like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ shared the word. And for those who walked away, they walked away without any persecution or a need to be ashamed within their society. 
And it's not our responsibility to force our religion upon others. And I think a great example, I'm a part of a Christian group on campus called Every Nation Campus, and we will do evangelizing on Fridays. And yesterday, I went out to dinner with a group of individuals who practice an entirely different religion, and we just learn from each other. And the idea is that we just have outreach and share those ideas, and I was just as interested and excited to learn about what they valued in their lives compared to what I did, as well as how that played into our culture, our race, and our backgrounds in general. So in addition to kind of trying to add some of the more, the nuance of the diversity of belief and the ethnic and cultural diversity within Christianity, another part of your response was bringing in some of the the more recent history of Christianity, specifically in the history of the United States going back you know, to 1776. So I was wondering, what are some of the the key moments of history, Christian history in the States that you thought were omitted from the original piece? For sure. I think it's difficult in any article, uh, whether it be ours or the one we responded to, to summarize kind of four centuries of American religious history into something that newer readers could digest. But, you know, I think, I think Hannah and I both agreed as we went through the piece that it seemed as though American Christianity kind of got brushed over as one group. And I think that group, the presentation of it was overly white, overly conservative, and in a way, overly Trumpian, because I know we use one example. The author uses one example in that piece. But, you know, if we take a look at American religious history, you know, 1620, uh, John Winthrop and the Puritans come to Massachusetts Bay. And, you know, that their group was very much anti-Catholic. If there was anything they agreed on, it was that Catholicism was wrong. American religious history also has to include American Catholic history. There's one case that we talk about in our article about white supremacy. White supremacy motivated fervent anti-Catholicism through the height of uh, Catholic immigration in the 19th and 20th centuries. You know, we saw anti-Catholic Blaine amendments, um, which, you know, sought to undermine Catholic schools, which is an important way that Catholics in the U.S. and really around the world have passed down the faith. You know, we didn't talk about this in our article, but even in more recent years, when John F. Kennedy announced his presidential run, there were questions about whether you could be Catholic and a president. We talk about, uh, in our article, in a few different places, the reaction to Justice Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. And so that's just, you know, the, that's just one, that's just the Catholic example is just one piece of the history that got overlooked. But I think as Hannah can attest to, even now, there's still, you know, for Christians, and whether that be Catholics, non-denominational, or any other sect, there's still history that gets overlooked. I think currently, it's really important just to draw on one of the points that Dennis brought up that we've seen now with the past president claiming to be Christian and people utilizing him as a spokesperson for the entire faith is very difficult to swallow for a lot of moderate and loving practicing Christians. That was very difficult to handle because it didn't necessarily actually represent the faith by his actions, as well as the idea that because we have a religious leader, a Christian religious leader, and now with President Biden serving as a Catholic religious leader, the idea that now religious discrimination has been rid of. We saw this as well with President Obama taking office and a lot of people perpetuating the idea that there was no longer racism, that was no longer a problem. And so I think we really need to combat the idea that just because someone is president office doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to be favoring that specific group or have a specific bias towards them. For example, we've had a few court cases with the church and coronavirus regulations. And in May of 2020, 
there was a church in Mississippi that was burned down by people who thought they, because they broke a coronavirus restriction. However, there's people all around not wearing a mask or gathering too many people, and we don't see clubs and bars being burned down, but we see an acceptance for those who are practicing the religious faith to be discriminated against. And there's that greater acceptance of that hatred that's being unaddressed. Yeah, you mentioned in your piece, you, you cited a article talking about the amount of churches destroyed and not destroyed, damaged or vandalized in 2020. And it was a not insubstantial number. So I guess when you're talking about Catholic discrimination in the modern era, you know, you have this historical context, it's very well known. What does it look like in the modern context, this idea of supposed Catholic or Christian discrimination? There's this vandalism of churches. That's a very clear example. Do you have anything else you can point to? Certainly. There's a great book by a professor actually written, uh, a professor at BC, entitled Anti-Catholicism, The Last Acceptable Prejudice. And it really takes us through the history of anti-Catholicism, but also, you know, how it manifests today. Uh, So in our article, one example we cite is the reaction to Justice Amy Coney Barrett's nomination. You know, everyone now knows the infamous line from uh, Senator Dianne Feinstein from California, almost in 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 a certain way, almost imposing a religious test on the nominee before her uh, at that time uh, when she was being nominated to a circuit court. But nevertheless, so there was one, so that's one example there, you know, and the implicit, the the implicit argument that I think Feinstein was uh, advancing in those comments was that someone couldn't be faithful and also faithful to Christ, in this case, the Catholic church, and or be faithful to their job in in a judge's case uh, to the constitution and to the laws of the United States. So, you know, I think I think there's pretty good consensus, especially amongst those in the Catholic community, that some of the reactions to Justice Barrett's nomination were indicative of anti-Catholicism. But even now, you know, we see Supreme Court cases pretty regularly, almost every term, with a state statute or a regulatory agency that's looking to impose a state will on the church. It was interesting, actually, in the article that we responded to. So the author cites one case, Our Lady of Guadalupe School, uh, which basically was a case about the adjudication of the hiring and firing of religious ministers. And the perspective that the author took was that the result of the case, which was in favor of the religious organization, expanded a legal term called the ministerial exemption. And what I thought was interesting about that is that the the idea that the author was advancing was really allowing the state to decide in a certain way who can and who cannot pass down the faith. Luckily, the Supreme Court ruled that you know that wasn't that wasn't allowed under under the law. But I think that's a dangerous you know a dangerous road we take, especially nowadays as we see an increasing role of the government on the state and federal levels. Dennis, you're bringing up some of the Supreme Court cases, which I know are a big part of the history of recent religion in American public life. And I'll circle back to those in a second. Uh, But you're also hinting at one of the, I guess, core principles of American public life, American government, which is the separation of church and state, which is something that every everyone who goes into the middle school civics class learns about. It's considered like a founding principle of this country. And it's it's drawn in stark contrast to some of the historic European kingdoms and countries that had a state religion or a state instituted religion. And this was a kind of a deviation from that. And so despite the fact that we have kind of this idea of separation of church and state, we also have 
a lot of references within the American government to God, presumably the Christian God. For example, the U.S., a lot of U.S. currency has references to God. The Pledge of Allegiance includes one nation under God. And when a lot of public officials take an oath of office, they take that oath under God, essentially. And so my question to both of you is, how do you resolve this apparent conundrum between, on the one hand, an idea of separation of church and state with these instances that seem to suggest that the church and state aren't, in fact, that separate? Part of the separation of church and state, I believe, is establishing that it is a two-way street. In the court cases that we reference, specifically Our Lady of Guadalupe, the preferred outcome was that the state dictates something that the church can do, and the state stepped over that boundary of imposing something upon religious believers. And when we talk about, for example, U.S. currency, we have the idea of the state imposing something on non-religious individuals, non-believers, people of other faiths. And I think it's really important to think about what does it to impose actually mean. We all are forced to participate in the exchange of currency and need to utilize funds in order to get uh, get around do our regular things in society. However, money with our father's name on it, it gets dirty. Every time I touch a penny, I get nauseous. Dollars get torn, they get put into the laundry, they come out ripped, torn to shreds, doesn't matter. There's nothing sacred about our God being written on that currency. And if in its own way, that's a disrespect to say that that holds religious significance when it's treated with so little value by everybody. So I think that's a great way to show that there is no religious imposition there, given that it doesn't hold any significance for any community. The same thing with the Pledge of Allegiance. A lot of people don't say it if they do not want to. It's not required of individuals. I went to a high school where I was the only one who would say the pledge in the morning. And so often the cases that were cited in the article that we had a response to didn't necessarily show a place where Christians were enforcing any sort of practice onto non-believers. All right. Well, thanks, Hannah, for for that answer. Dennis, do you have any thoughts on this topic as well? Yeah, I think it's interesting to take a historical look at what the separation of church and state means. You know, if we actually take a look at the history, we, we know that not everyone has agreed on actually what separation between church and state means. You know, there were debates over during the Constitutional Convention about this. But the view that the author takes in the piece that we responded to is, is that there must be a legal and cultural strict separation. Um, but that's not really evidence in the historical consensus. And we know this just, you know, one, one way that we know this is that Massachusetts, for example, didn't abolish state sponsorship of its church until 1833. And Massachusetts wasn't alone. Uh, New Hampshire, Connecticut, you know, other states had state-sponsored churches well through the first few decades of the 1800s. So, you know, if the historical consensus really was that there has to be this strict separation between church and state, we'll just talk about the legal aspect here. That's not really evidenced in the record. But then, you know, stepping away from the legal arguments, we have the question about what's the relationship between religion and politics in America? And again, I think the the piece that we responded to, I think the author's opinion is that there has to be a strict separation. But the irony in that is that in that original piece, there's a citation of an, a Time magazine article from Senator James Lankford uh, of Oklahoma and Christian ethicist Dr. Russell Moore. And the irony is in that very article, the authors reject the belief that the First Amendment uh, should operate, quote, as a tool for silencing opposing views. 
end quote. So, you know, I think this relationship between re religion and politics is very interesting, very nuanced. But one thing is, is that we can't use this idea of the separation between church and state. I'm going to throw that in air quotes because that's that's just a term that people are now used for it. You know, that was that should never be used, you know, as a, as a way to say, if you're a religious believer, you have to leave your convictions at the door when you enter the public sphere. So, Dennis, you mentioned this kind of historical history that actually there often wasn't that much separation between church and state. When we look at the present day, you're mentioning these court cases where the churches are winning the court cases, saying that, no, their practices can continue. There is a large number of politicians that are Catholics or Christians. It seems like, at least institutionally, there's a lot of predisposition towards Christianity. Does that mean that you're winning? Does that mean this isn't as much of a problem? Or is there something else to it? I think the idea of the religious organizations winning, I think we need to define what winning means. If we look at cases recently, um, and we talked about uh, the COVID court cases, I think winning these cases really means basic operations of your church organization. So, you know, there was a case, I think it was only a few days ago, where, you know, there was a church in California, and the Supreme Court found that the restrictions that were imposed were not fair. I believe it was a total, a total ban on services. There was a case in New York uh, where Governor Cuomo, who happens to be a Catholic, the Supreme Court found that his restrictions on religious organizations, but not on similar secular institutions, where that was not constitutional. So it's interesting to think about the relationship between representation and what the actual operations of religious life is. So I think at this point, a lot of these cases are really about basic operations of the faith. So that's why I don't really take winning, you know, with uh, with a little bit of grandeur. So you say that's not winning, but, you know, existing in a multi-religious, multi-ethnic, multicultural society, what would winning winning look like for the church if it's not getting direct control over policy or, you know, strong Christian influence on politics? Or is that winning winning? I like to joke around whenever anyone asks what would the ideal world look like for a Christian, I say world domination. However, I just think having a seat at the table and being allowed to actually speak is important. Oftentimes, we have the toted idea that we need everyone present, and once there's a seat at the table, their voices aren't heard. That's not what they're there for. They're there to show face. I think it's important for allowing just that engagement in the public sphere is the only thing that we could truly ask for. Because as believers, we just want to share the faith and support those who would like to come into it. So kind of bouncing off that, in your article, a very distinct uh, separate line, you don't even have it in a paragraph, it's on its own, is that you say the world is a terrifying place for believers of any faith. So I guess the natural question out of that is, who's making the world terrifying for these believers? There's, there's a few reasons why, and, and I might also add from the historical perspective, the world has always been a difficult place for believers because, you know, no matter what your faith is, you know, we'll just use Christianity in this case, the Christian call in the gospel is a very, is a very distinct and it's a very powerful call. And one that, you know, is in opposition frequently to, you know, what society or what advantageous political leaders might want. So, you know, I think it's interesting in some cases we see, like, for example, in New York with Governor Cuomo, who happens to be a Catholic, the world can be a dangerous place for believers, even when people are in positions of authority that have nominal adherence to a faith, because there's creeds, there's certain societal creeds, I don't want to call them secular, because in many ways, everything we do is not truly secular. But there are certain ideas that run contrary to the, the distinctive evangelical spirit 
and the demands that a Christian faith, an authentic Christian faith imposes on believers. And I think, you know, maybe Hannah can speak to this more, but I think in my, I think in my own life, you know, I'll, I'll bring up uh, that I'm a Catholic in a conversation with someone. And I really do think some people come away from those conversations. I don't want to say with a bad taste in their mouth, but almost with an extra question that they have to ask themselves like, oh, that's strange. Hannah, I don't know, maybe you can speak to that more. I think that happens more times than anything. If I bring up I'm a believer in a situation, sometimes it's like, oh, really? Or they'll have questions, which is perfectly fine. But I do think it creates an unnecessary shift in a lot of relationships or even instances where people, upon hearing something I will believe, would say something very rude back with some profanity. So I, even if it's just a simple statement like, oh, I believe this. Well, that's not blank. And there's never a place where we can come to those middle grounds. So upon like who's really making the world a terrifying place, I think oftentimes we like to think of persecution as a issue for another country where the state is perpetuating violence as well as removing rights of citizens. However, discrimination is discrimination and there's not necessarily a value that you can put to one or say one is more uh, important than the other to address. And I think we've fallen into that comfortable place where we could have let microaggression slide. And so there's idea of a type of, I would use the word secularism, that really allows that to happen, as well as having people who are nominal believers in power. So would you suggest that both the federal and state governments in the U.S. are overwhelmingly secular and anti-Christian? Is that fair of your argument? I wouldn't say that there's an overwhelming anti-Christian bias in government, but I think the the what we were trying to get at in that line that we used is that setting aside the discrimination that's going on in China or the fact that Christians in the Middle East often face persecution or even, you know, Muslims, Jews, and Christians in America. So I, I, ju- I just want to say that I don't think it, I don't think there's a delineation based on your specific religious adherence. I think that being religious is something that many people, especially government entities, identify as an issue. In the U.S., luckily, I think because of our unique history uh, with religion in American public life, I don't think we have the same type of clash that other nations do, especially in Europe, considering uh, European history. So I think that's one of the beauties of our system and you know, of the First Amendment, that both can exist peacefully. To make things a little bit lighter while staying on the topic of persecution. I want to hear briefly from Dennis and Hannah what you guys think about the the coffee cup controversy, which is the the cultural phenomenon that a lot of people have observed of panic when Starbucks or other companies take off overtly Christian or overtly Christmas branding from some of their holiday cups or branding or stores. So real quick, if I could just get some some thoughts from both of you about where you stand on the coffee cup controversy. So I think it's really important to identify whether someone is saying Merry Christmas or Happy Holidays or what's on the coffee cup. It's all about the intention. If they're not a believer and they're not accepting the holiday for the birth of Jesus Christ and a celebration of our salvation, then it no longer matters what's on the cup or what you're doing with it. Because the idea of Christmas is that it's a sacred holiday. It's something for us to participate in. And a lot of the times, 
it's brought into this public sphere as simply something to enjoy. So unless there's a way that us having Merry Christmas on the cup would effectively convert people because they were inspired by their drink, which doesn't happen, I'm not really convinced it's an issue. Yeah, and I might also add, we've seen the commodification of everything these days, including uh, religious holidays. So, you know, that's not something that I particularly, you know, enjoy. For me personally, Starbucks can put whatever they want on their coffee cup. It's not a big concern for me. I personally like Dunkin' better anyway. But as, as Hannah said, I don't think coffee cups are an evangelical tool for anyone. So, you know, if a specific subset of American Christians find that to be problematic, they're more than welcome to express those views. I personally think there's probably some bigger issues uh, that we should be trying to address. As long as it's not a crucifix, we're, we're in the clear. Yeah, I'll second that. <laughs> All right. Well, with that, I want to thank Dennis and Hannah for, for joining us today on New Perspectives to break two of the three rules of polite conversation, which is don't talk about politics and don't talk about religion. So I'm really glad that you guys were able to join us to have a discussion about these two topics. And of course, I also want to thank Brian for joining me on the mic uh, as a co-host. Well, thank you both for coming, and I hope everyone listening will stick around for another segment of Class Struggle with Ariana Bennett coming up right now. Welcome back to our newest segment of Class Struggle, where we compete for your extra electives, hosted by me, Ariana Bennett, one of the podcast producers here at Newfer. This episode, we have sort of a special edition as we one of our guests is from Boston College, but we'll start with Hannah, a second year here at Northeastern. So Hannah, tell me what is one of your favorite or most impactful classes you've taken here at Northeastern? So last semester, I took ancient philosophy and political thought, and it absolutely floored me. It was my first course-based introduction to a lot of philosophy. And it allowed me to see how our political systems have developed over time in terms of valuing virtue and how to really enforce justice system that values equity and proper society. A good way where no one kills each other, but also everyone kind of likes each other. So it was definitely interesting to see how to implement that now as I continue my studies in political science. And then, so I know you are applying for co-op right now. So how has that class either influenced the search you're going through right now, or maybe future career plans? It's made me shift towards looking at think tanks and a lot more policy-driven institutions that utilize philosophy as a background to support some of their ways of thinking. I believe it introduced a solid framework for how I go about doing research now, so it's definitely been super helpful, and I'm exciting, excited about what opportunities are now in the co-op realm now that that's in my mind. That's incredible, and good luck with your search. Um, and then Dennis, we'll turn it to you. So we get an interesting perspective because we don't necessarily hear a lot about the classes going on over in Newton at Boston College. So tell me what is one of your favorite or most impactful classes you've taken there? Yeah, I think it's kind of on brand for this episode. Um, my favorite class has been uh, Religion in American Public Life, which is taught by the director of the Boise Center for Religion in American Public Life at BC, Father Mark Massa. And the class basically takes you through a, a brief overview of American religious history from 1620, uh, kind of up through the present day. And you hit some of the main markers in, in trying to understand what's the relationship 
between believers and non-believers? What's the relationship between believers of different faiths? And, you know, how does the state interact with the church? Awesome. It sounded like that definitely reinforces a lot of the arguments you made throughout the episode. So that's so cool. Um, And then how has this impacted maybe I know you're applying for master's programs or just future career plans in general? It's definitely impacted what I'm looking to do in my master's program. My master's program hopefully would be focused on uh, U.S. history, but with a specific look at American religious and legal history. Um, I think the relationship between the two, very complex, very nuanced and increasingly important because I think now the nation's still trying to, you know, identify consensus around what is that proper relationship and what role should the law play. So, you know, hopefully after my master's program, I'll make it to law school. <laughs> um, fingers crossed, we'll see. But, you know, it's definitely it's definitely opened me up to a, uh, a different part of the legal realm that I might not have interacted with otherwise. Amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dennis and Hannah, for this segment and the episode overall. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of New Perspectives. I want to thank Hannah and Dennis for joining us on the show to discuss their views on Christianity in American public life. We especially appreciate them sharing their perspectives and experiences regarding this topic, which is very personal to both of them. I also want to thank our producers, Brian Grady and Ariana Bennett for all of their work, both on the mic and behind the scenes to bring new perspectives to you. Make sure to check out NU Political Review for more from Hannah, Dennis, and all of the other great writers contributing to NUPR. If you're a Northeastern student looking to be a guest on the show, feel free to email us at nuprpodcast at gmail.com. We're always looking for new guests, and we'd love to have you on the show. Additionally, if you're interested in publishing an article with NUPR, check out the submission link at the top of nupoliticalreview.com to get started. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of New Perspectives. I hope you all have a great day.